All right, it's 9.31. Let's get started this morning. Let's get started. Um, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and as we pray this morning, um, I'd ask you to pray for Betty Delgado. I got a call from her early this morning. Her sister passed away. Her sister passed away early this morning, so um, be praying for Betty. Um, yeah, her sister in Colorado. So um, any other prayer requests real quick that I can be praying for this morning? Anything? Um, I'm trying to look around the room, but okay. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this, the, the great opportunity that we have to meet together this morning. We meet here um, freely. We meet here. Um, all of us were able to drive here in, in warm cars and, and leave warm houses to come to a warm building, and we're grateful for that this morning. We're grateful for how you take care of us. And Lord, we, we are thankful that you give us this wonderful privilege to be able to intercede for others, and we do lift up our friend and sister Betty this morning, and uh, I pray that you'd comfort her heart. I pray that you would, would give her peace, um, peace that, that cannot even be explained, but peace that comes directly from you. And so, Lord, we, we ask that for her. May she know your grace and presence this morning. And Father, now as we open your word, um, we marvel at so great of salvation, and we, we struggle to put our feeble minds around it, and so I pray that where we can't get our minds wrapped around the truths of Scripture, that you would impart to us just that confidence in you, and knowing this, God, um, you do all things well, and there, there are no mistakes with you, and so... May we rest in who you are this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm glad to see you this morning, and I was thinking this morning, sitting in my office, about just this question, why are we doing what we're doing? And I want to be clear on something here. Um, we're bringing together all the adults on Sunday morning, not so that Pastor Dan can stand up in front, open his Bible, and authoritatively tell you, I am right and other people are wrong. That's, that's not the point of this at all. The point of this is, honestly, is that we would deepen in our understanding of God's amazing salvation. It, it, is, it is hard to fathom that God would do what God has done. If you're a child of God this morning, it ought to just absolutely blow your, your heart away that God would choose to set his love on you. And so I, I'm, that's been my prayer and, and so we, last week, began to unpack the issue. The issue is this understanding of how in the scriptures you see where man is clearly presented as, as having to make some responses to what God has done. Man has to respond to what God has done, and, and there's a responsibility. Use words like, whosoever will, repent, believe, those are incumbent on man to do something, are they not? Man is commanded, we're going to see in the scriptures today, man is commanded to respond. But then there are, are plenty of other verses, and we're going to get to those this morning, that deal with, with God's sovereignty, with his will, with his purpose, and what God specifically does in regard to salvation. And so, I want us to understand that it's easy for us, this is going to be kind of an obvious statement, it's easy for us as human beings to understand salvation from our perspective, right? We look at it and we're like, yes, this is, this is what I have to do, and it's, it's, but it, as easy as it is for us to understand it, it's equally difficult for us to understand salvation from God's perspective, because we don't think divinely, okay? We just don't think that way. And so we began last week unpacking this idea of sovereignty, okay? And, and basically sovereignty is, is this, that, that God is Lord over all. And as Lord, he exercises his authority and his control over his creation, and he is active in all of his creation, True or false? Is God actively at work in his creation right now? He is. Um, and so I want to begin 
with, with perspective here. And we're going to get our perspective from a guy named Job. Remember Job in the Bible? Let's go to Job chapter 42. Um, Job, Job, if at the beginning, we don't have time to unpack everything about Job, but, but remember that who puts Job in the crosshairs of Satan? Who does that? Almighty God does, doesn't he? He says to Satan what? Have you considered my servant Job? Just stop and think about that. If he would do that with Job, would he do that with one or more of us in this room? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. And, and so the, the, the book of Job then chronicles, the first few chapters chronicle all the things that happened to Job. And let's remind ourselves, Job loses it all, doesn't he? Loses his children, he loses all his wealth, he, he loses everything but what? The contentious wife. Am, am I right? He loses everything but his contentious wife. And, and he has three friends that show up to, to sit with him, and they get it right for the first week, don't they? Because what don't they do for the whole first seven days? They don't talk. They just sit with him, right, in his grief. And as soon as they start talking is when the problems start, right? And so you have the bulk of this book, Job wrestling with God and Job wrestling, trying to vindicate himself and his friends trying to point out all these horrible things that he's done or supposedly said or acted. And, and, and finally, God steps in. And you have about three chapters of God taking Job from where he thinks up here. And by the time that God is done with him, where is Job? He's way down here. Where were you when I did this? Can you do this? All implying that are you, are you the powerful one, Job, or am I the powerful one? And I want you to catch Job's response in Job 42. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement. It's not a statement of, oh God, oh woe is me. Was Job in the oh woe is me phase? By the time he gets to the end of this and God working in him, he, he confesses this. He confesses this deep truth, this important truth. I know that nothing that you have purposed to do can be thwarted. Is that true of everything that God does? Church, is that true of everything God does? Can God be thwarted? No. He cannot be thwarted. And I want to talk a little bit about God's plans and His purposes, and I want to show you some things from Scripture before we specifically apply this to salvation. What I want to first show you is in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to move around a lot, so I hope either you got your thumbs ready on your, on your Bible on your phone, or you got your, 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 your hard copy of your Bible ready to go here. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11, and I'm, I'm putting this under the broad heading of God's plans and purposes, and I want to explain something to us about God's plans and purposes so that we understand them, okay? We could say God's plans and purposes, another way of saying that might be God's will, it might be God's, God's plan for, for all of eternity, but, but let's understand with this, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11, we don't have time to unpack everything, we're going to probably come back and look at this passage, but, but basically he's talking about the mystery, the mystery of the gospel, okay? And as he's talking about the mystery of the gospel, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose. Words matter, okay? We, we have the benefit of living in central Ohio, and, and whenever you hear Ohio State referred to, how is it that all their athletes refer to it? The, and it becomes obnoxious, doesn't it? The Ohio State University. The. This was according to, what's that word? What does that word the imply? There's one. There's a sole eternal purpose. God has one sole eternal purpose. And who is it centered in? It is centered in Christ himself, is it not? 
And, and I like the way that Beth just put that, the Lamb of God, because by the time you come to the end of what is revealed to us in Scripture, who takes center stage in the throne room of heaven? It's the Lamb of God. It's Christ, right? The Lamb is the one who is the, the central character of, of the book of Revelation, okay? So let's understand here, right off the bat, when we talk about God's plans and purposes, does God deal in plan Bs? You and I do. I was thinking about this. How many of you have to run errands at times, and you try to squeeze your errands in around your appointments? Let's just say you have to go into Mount Vernon or Columbus or Newark, and you have a doctor's appointment, but you also have to get a couple things done. How many of you do this? Well, I'm going to go now, and I'm going to try and get these things done. I'm going to go to the appointment and then try to do the other things. How many of you are guilty of trying to do that? How many of you have to go with the plan B because you only got the first thing done on your list? That never happens with God. What God set out to determine to do in eternity past is getting done exactly the way he wants it done. Now, when things are good, we, we take great joy in that, don't we? But when things get rocky in our lives, we begin to doubt that, don't we? One bad health diagnosis, one, one problem with your job, one, one, you know, one economic downturn, whatever, one wrong guy gets in the White House and we begin to wonder, God, where is your plan B? Does God have plan B's, church? No, he is accomplishing his purpose, okay? It's one purpose. Go back a couple of pages to chapter one. And we're going to unpack this verse a little bit more, but I want to make a second point about God's purpose. It's eternal, okay? This was set, set in motion back in eternity past, which is hard for us to fathom. Ephesians 1, talking about all these things that we are in Christ. Verse 4 says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation. When did he choose us in him? Before the foundation of the world. Eternity past. Go over to Titus chapter 1. I'm trying to arm you with a lot of scriptures here, and, and many of you have asked to make sure that I, that I note those scriptures and that I, that I get them for you. Yes? We're going to come back to that. We're coming back to predestined, okay? I'm just talking about right now God's purposes, and I want to establish some things. We're going to get to that, okay? It's a good question. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Okay? So Paul, a servant of God, right, which, and he talks about the, the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised when? Before the ages began, eternity passed. God's purpose was established in eternity. It's an eternal purpose. Another verse you can put down, we're not going to look up, but you might want to look up, is Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 deals with that as well, deals with God's eternal purpose. Okay, so it's one, it's eternal, and, and it's also immutable. It doesn't change. It's immutable. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. You understand what I mean by immutable? It means that God does not change. If God does not change, can His can his purpose change then? No, it doesn't. That's, a, that's bad logic to say that. So verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, okay? There, clearly, the writer of Hebrews connects this, the unchangeable character of his purpose. There is a really bad teaching out there, and in, in, in it's infecting churches today, this idea of open theism. How many of you ever heard of the term open theism? Open theism basically says this, that God does not know the future or God chooses not to know the future, and then he just reacts because he's all-powerful and he will accomplish his purpose, but God is basically turned into a GPS who always has to recalibrate. Does that jive with this scripture that we just read here? Does that work? It does not work. Okay? God, God does not choose to not know what's in the future. Okay? That, that violates many principles, one of which is the fact that he's all-knowing. If you're all-knowing, then you know everything, right? 
okay? And so open theism is a lie from the pit of hell, okay? Another verse you can put here, and a good one, and I'm just trying to save time, is Psalm 33 and verse 11, under the immutability of God's purpose, the, the fact that it doesn't change. Psalm 33 and verse 11 is a good one to put there. I want to hone in on this one, though. It's universal. God's purpose comprises all of the universe, including his decisions that are, the decisions that are made by those in the universe, actions, conditions, and circumstances of all created beings, whether good or evil. Let me read that again. God's purpose comprises all of the universe, including the decisions, the actions, the conditions, and the circumstances of all created beings, whether good or evil. Okay, let's look at a couple verses. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Basically what we're saying here is, is that God is in charge of all here, okay? But we want to see this from the scripture. Verse 3 of Proverbs 16, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Is everything include human beings? Church, does that, mean, does that mean human beings as well? God has made everything for his purpose, even what? Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Does that help us to understand, even from a broad scale, some of the horrible things that have happened in history? Does that? The wicked were made and they were ordained for God's purposes. Think about your, your Old Testament. What does it say that God did with Pharaoh's heart? God, does that scare you that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? In a way, it's just kind of frightening. Because if God's hardening hearts in the Old Testament, is he hardening hearts today as well? Yes, he is. He's also softening hearts. He's also calling hearts, okay? But, but, God, but God is in charge here. God specifically is the first cause here, okay? Uh, let's look at Job chapter 14 and verse 5. Job chapter 14 and verse 5. Talking about man. Talking about man. Since his days are determined. What does that mean that man's days are determined? Does God know when you check in? And does God know when you're going to check out? How does he know that? Because he ordained it. He, he established it. He established it. You and I can't shorten our days and we can't lengthen our days. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Okay, God clearly, his purposes extend to, to us as individuals, okay? Uh, let me give you one more. Let's look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. How many things are God's servants? All things. The deer that, that ran into your car or caused you to swerve off the road, was that God's servant or was that just a random chance event? Was that deer God's servant? Was. It is. We don't think of it that way. We just think of, man, that was really bad luck that I came around the corner and that was deer was right there, right? That's God's servant, okay? He, he is in control, okay? So his purpose is one, it's eternal, it's unchanging, it's universal, and it's also certain. God's purpose is certain. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19. How many of you have plans for this afternoon? 
How many of you are going to have those plans fall apart, probably? <laughs> How many of you had plans to get a lot done this past week, and that all fell apart? Okay, you'll relate to this verse. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man. And if you're married, many, are, many more are in the plans of the man's wife. <laughs> right? <laughs> many are the plans. Right? But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What is that verse saying to us? What is that verse saying to us? God's will prevails. We make our plans, but God will get his purpose accomplished. Right? Isn't that what that verse is saying? Is it saying it's wrong to make plans? No. But, but, but remember, even, even we were taught, you know, in James, you know, we ought to be saying, as the Lord wills, right? I'm going to go do this, right? It's not, it's not just a Christianese thing to say, God willing, I'm hoping to do this, or Lord willing. It's actually a wise way to approach stuff, okay? Understanding that God's in control here, all right? God's purpose is certain. A couple, another verse you could put there. In fact, let's just look at it. Isaiah 46. Let's look at Isaiah 46. I want to arm you with a lot of verses here. Isaiah 46 and verse 10. This is under the, the part where, where, where the, the gods of Babylon are being compared with, with Yahweh, the one true God. Okay, and this is what God says about himself in verse 10. Well, let's get into it in verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, stating what's going to happen in the end and the beginning, stating all those things. And from ancient times, things not yet done. What's that saying there? God, ancient times, talking about eternity past, has stated exactly what's going to take place in the future, okay? He, he's, he's already said it, and then he says this, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God's going to do what God's going to do, okay? Can we... Just make, stop and make a couple observations here at this point. One, God's very big and we're not. You agree with that? God's very big and we're not. Second observation is this. God does not submit to our will, but all of creation accomplishes his will. God does not submit to our will. And one of the troubling things I find about modern day theology is, is that it implies in the way that it is presented that you and I can somehow bend the mind of God and make him change his mind. That makes him a very weak God. Because if, if I can change God's mind, guess what? I'm going to work hard to manipulate this God, much like we had in the Old Testament where, where, the, where the gods of Pharaoh, where, where he brought in all the priests and they did everything they could in front of those gods to get them to do stuff. And time after time with the plagues, what did Jehovah do? He demonstrated, no, I'm more powerful than your God. We don't, we don't get to change God's mind. And he doesn't submit to our will. Now I want you to get to this last one. God's will is absolute and, it, and it's, it's determined what is to take place and how it is to take place. And I want you to go to a really important text. I want you to go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 26. So as the believers are praying for John and Peter, this is what is being prayed. And they're quoting David. Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, 
Jerusalem, they're in Jerusalem, they were, they were gathered against your, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let's unpack that, what's being said there. What's being said there is, is that, yes, Herod and Pontius Pilate got this idea in their head that it was time to be done with Jesus, right? They were the ones who, who signed off on his execution, if you will. But whose plan was it? Whose plan was it that they were accomplishing? And that plan was predestined. That word predestined means to be determined beforehand. Destiny determined beforehand. Who did the predestining? Was it Herod and Pilate? Who did it? Almighty God did it. Would you agree with me that the crucifixion and all the events surrounding it are the most important event of all of history? Who, who, who set that all in motion? God, God himself did that. Okay? Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is Jesus talking prior to his crucifixion. I just want to emphasize this point. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Who's, who's doing it? Was Christ's life taken or did he lay it down? Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He's the only man in history who can say that. You say, well, what about people who commit suicide? They took their life. No, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Okay? So, even the crucifixion is absolute, determine what was going to take place and how it was going to take place. So, we've learned a little bit about God's plans and purposes. Now, let's take the, what we've learned and let's apply that specifically to salvation, okay? Ready to do that? Let's take that and apply that to salvation. What does that mean? Let's start here. When we talk about salvation, I think a good verse to begin with is actually in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, and let's begin in verse 7, and I want to get down to verse 9. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Okay? Is that kind of a reference to what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yes. Jesus in his flesh, he's, he's offering up prayers. Remember, remember what the prayer was? It's recorded, not my will, but your will be done. If you will, Father, let this cup pass from me, right? Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became what? The source of eternal salvation, okay? Who is the source of salvation? Is it man or is it God? It's Christ himself, isn't it? Christ is the source of salvation, okay? That's important. If you produce a document on whatever you're proficient in, okay? If you produce a document on whatever you're proficient in, I'm going to just pick on Denny Allen. You're a woodworker, Denny, and you're going to produce a, a how-to for me on woodworking. And I read it, and I don't understand something. Do I go to the internet to figure out what I want, or do I go to you? I should go to you, right? I should go to the person who wrote, right? If I want to learn, okay? Christ is the source, okay? It has to start there. This originates in the mind of God. Christ is the source of salvation. Are we clear on that? Okay, let's talk about man for a second. I'm going to make a statement here, and then I'm going to back it up with Scripture, okay? Okay? 
I'm going to give you four scriptures, but I'll make a statement first. Under God's sovereignty and salvation, number one, Christ is the source. Number two, man is incapable of any saving good, of choosing to submit to God, or generating faith to believe. Man is incapable of doing that. Now let me give you the scriptures that back that up. Let's start with Romans chapter 3. This is where a lot of people get hung up. And, and, and as we're going to Romans chapter 3, I think every one of us can say this. At the moment of conversion, at some point in salvation, we had to consciously make a choice. We had to say, yes, I believe. Everybody, is that true of everybody in here? Okay? No one's arguing that. And in saying this, I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying here, though, is this. What was the source of that in our minds? Were we the source of that, or was there another source behind that? And we're going to come to that, okay? But let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. When the Bible says none, does it mean none? None is righteous, verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks after God, and yet every one of our testimonies would say, there came a moment where that light flipped or whatever, and I understood I was a sinner, and I had to repent. But man in his fallen state, will he seek after God? He won't. No one seeks after God. Keep going. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So all the good stuff, and I'm just going to assume that this guy isn't a believer based on a lot of lack of fruit that I see, but all the good stuff that Bill Gates does for all these organizations all over the world, that doesn't count for good for him? Does it? Why not? Because it's coming from an evil heart still, right? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a description of fallen man. Okay, we're in Romans. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. It's close. Let's go to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, okay, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Anybody, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Are you, are you a believer or an unbeliever? You're an unbeliever. Those who live according to the flesh. That means that, that we, whatever, whatever our bodies and our minds desire, we, we just go to that and we, and we feed that, is to live according to the flesh. The flesh is what controls us, okay? It's a description of unbelievers. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Okay, is that true? What are the wages of sin? Death. Okay? So, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You'll hear me say this every now and then. You might hear other preachers say this. This isn't original with me. Before we are in Christ, we are absolutely rebels against Him absolutely rebels against We are actively rebelling against him. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. And this is important, what Paul puts at the end here. Because why? Indeed it what? It can't. It can't. Okay? Another passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins. Let's just stop there. What does it mean to be dead? I'm not trying to be funny here. What does it mean to be dead? Can dead things act? For the last week, on my way to church and coming into town on Concord Road in the bend, just before you get to Johnstown, there is a deer that's been laying there. And at night when I drive by there, there are all kinds of little varmints, and a big varmint was there the other night. I think it was a coyote. I scared it, okay? That deer, if it had the ability, it would get up and not let itself be eaten. But it's dead, right? It's rotting. It can't act, okay? And that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan himself, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh. Okay? Was this universal? We all were under this? Yes. Okay? We're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. That means destined for destruction. Okay? Like the rest of mankind, but God. Two of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love and with which he loved us, even when we were, what's it say? Dead. Okay? What, if Paul were here standing today, how would he describe for us who we were before we were in Christ? How would, what was the word he would use? Dead. Dead. Okay? Go to John chapter 6 and verse 44. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Jesus here talking about the bread of life, and he's calling people to himself, okay? And so, notice what he says in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That sounds like whosoever will, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like whosoever will, church? If you'll look, you'll receive, right? So the Jews, verse 41, grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Catch this in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay? Now, that word draws him is an interesting word. Draws is an interesting word in the original language. We think of drawing as maybe just like gently wooing and coaxing and and kind of cajoling somebody. That word literally means drag. No one can come to Christ unless God the Father drags them to Him. Who's doing the dragging? Some guy who's playing the 47th verse of Just As I Am and manipulating, manipulating people down an aisle, or is it God Himself who's dragging people to Christ? It's God. That's, that's the words of Scripture here. God has to drag us to Christ. Think of it this way. If you're the child of God, at one point in your life, God had to drag you to the foot of the cross because you wouldn't voluntarily go there. Okay? One more verse under this idea of man is incapable. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 because I want you to see what's actively happening right now. How many of you have witnessed to somebody and you feel like they're so close, but, but the light isn't going off? You ever had that happen? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 explains what's going on here. So Paul's talking about his ministry, okay? He's defending his ministry to the Corinthian church. And verse 3, he says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, perishing means dying, so he's talking about unbelievers, right? It's veiled to unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world, who is that? What is he doing? He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. He is actively working to keep them from seeing the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine into darkness, has shone into our hearts. Who's doing the shining? God is. Because not only are we in rebellion to God, not only are we actively rebelling against Him, the God of this world, Satan, is actively at work to keep us in spiritual darkness. That is why it's miraculous anytime a soul comes to Christ. So, Christ is the source. Man is incapable of any saving good or of choosing to submit to God or generating faith to believe, and we've seen that in the Scriptures. So number three, then, is where we get to where the rubber meets the road. Because man is unable to produce saving work as a dead being, God must initiate and carry out salvation. And what does the Scripture say that God does? This is what we want to see. Do you agree with me that man is incapable of saving himself? then he must be saved, correct, by something far greater than himself, correct? So what does God do? Here's what God does. Number one, you're going to get your questions answered, Miranda. Are you ready? Let's go to Ephesians chapter one. This is what God does. God elects, chooses before the foundation of the world those he, those he will save. I said it. The Scripture says it. This is not Dan Scarberry. This is the Scripture saying this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now Paul is going to list these spiritual blessings as he's writing to a church, a, people, a group of believers. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If we can't save ourselves, then God has to save us, and God has chosen those he will save. That word chose there means to pick out, to choose for oneself. And it is not the only place in Scripture that says this. Um, let's go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you. Same word as in Ephesians. Chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. Do you remember what Jesus said? You did not choose me, but what? I chose you. Okay. We already saw in John chapter 6 and verse 37 where Jesus says this, all that the Father has given to me. Well, how does the Father know who he has given to the Son? How does he know that? He has to choose, right? He has to choose. Now, let's talk about what the basis of this choosing, this election is. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to start there, and then we're going to go to the book of Romans. Ephesians chapter 1. What is the basis of God choosing? How many of you played kickball at recess in elementary school? What was the basis of getting chosen on, on Bobby's team or Billy's team? Yeah. Who, who got picked first? It wasn't me either. That's why I got myself in trouble in fifth grade and put a tack on a girl's chair so I could get on the good kid's team. And it still didn't get me there. It's a long story. We'll talk about that later. Okay. What's the basis of choosing? It's merit, right? If you want to win recess kickball, who do you choose? You choose all the jocks, don't you? Right? You don't choose the unathletic ones like me, right? What was the basis of God's choosing? Okay. Well, 
if we just go through this verse, let's go through the whole passage so you can see this, okay? We already read verses 1 through 4. Let's pick up in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the from the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will what is the basis of God choosing us his good pleasure his will And that's good news for us. You know why? Because if it's based on our merit, how many of us are getting chosen? None. None would be chosen if it was based on merit. Let me give you another passage to consider about this. I don't want to give you just one. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. In my Bible, Romans chapter 9, the very heading of it says, God's sovereign choice, which is why a lot of people stay away from Romans chapter 9, because it, it really cuts hard. I'll be honest with you, Romans 9 cuts hard. Look at Romans chapter 9. He's talking here, and we're going to pick up in the middle. In verse 7, he's talking about the children of Abraham and through Isaac. And so, so now, verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Who were the two children that Rebekah had conceived here? Jacob and Esau. Who was the firstborn? Okay. Who, by, by right, by, by tradition, by right, by custom, who had the right to be the, the, the one who was the inheritor of all, the birthright? Esau, okay? You remember that story now, right? You've got that familiar in your mind? Okay. Look at verse 11. Though they had not yet, were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad. Okay, what is Paul clearly here delineating? There's no merit to be had. They're, they are just a twinkle in their mother's eye. They had not been born in order that God's purpose of what? I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I hate that you talk about election. It's not biblical. Is it in your Bible? Church, is it in your Bible? Who's doing the electing? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of who? Who's him who calls? Okay. This is not based on anything that Jacob and Esau were going to do or had done. God just chose. If we continue on, she was told, verse 12, the older were served the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? Because that's what we want to charge him with at this point, don't we? How could you, God, how dare you? And how dare you believe that God does this? Well, there's no injustice here. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this is where I come back to my very first statement this morning. Folks, we need to get a bigger view of God's salvation and stop looking at it with small human minds, but try to understand it from God's perspective. That God would save anyone is glorious. That God would save anyone is glorious. So no act on my part or your part determines whether or not we receive salvation. It's God's will and God's pleasure. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 because Paul includes another word that's really important to us. After verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined. 
This is the word that Miranda asked about about 30 minutes ago. He predestined. What does that mean? It means that destiny is determined based on foreknowledge or that he decided beforehand. Because God decided beforehand, he determined where your destiny is. It was foreordained or appointed beforehand. We find the same word, if you want to see it elsewhere, we find it in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 29. I hope you're keeping track of all these scriptures so you can go back and look at them. Verse 28 is a verse that we really like to quote, right? And if you're in Christ, it's a great comfort. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew. Let's talk about foreknowledge for a second. Because this is where I think we get hung up. Let's talk about foreknowledge. There's two ways to view foreknowledge. And I I like to equate it this way. If God looks down eternity past and eternity future like a giant hallway, some believe that foreknowledge is that God knows who's going to open their door and step into salvation. That's how some people understand foreknowledge. That's not what this word means. It's not foresight, because that's what just foresight, isn't it? God seeing ahead what's, who's going to choose. Foreknowledge is actually knowing because God has already done it. How many of you ever recorded something like an Ohio State football game and you found out the score before you got to watch it? Has it ever happened to you? If they've lost, do you usually watch it? If they win, do you, even when it looks really bad, do you sit there like, no sweat, we win, right? That's based on what? You already know the result. You know because you, you've seen the result. God knows and has seen the result because he determined the result. That's even better than us watching a football game. A lot of us yell at our TVs like we can determine the outcome of the game. God absolutely does determine the outcome. If foresight is really what this word means then, just logically, then God is not sovereign. And here's why. God is held hostage by, to man's decisions, and if you're held hostage to man's decisions, are you truly sovereign? No, you're not. You're not. Let me give you a verse of Scripture to consider with this. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is where Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and is preaching that fiery sermon. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Let's get into it in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I'm guessing there's not a ton of Greek scholars in this room, but there's a really important Greek rule that has to be applied here. And it's called the Granville Sharp Rule. When you have the article the and you have the conjunction and, then it equates those two things. The definite plan and foreknowledge, as Paul is writing this, they are the same thing in Paul's mind. They are the exact same thing. God's foreknowledge is what he's saying then is actually his plan. In other words, God, because he determined it, he knows. And so in other words, the secret things belong to our God, right? And while it's really hard for us to come to grips with this, God has a plan and he has a purpose. Ephesians 1.11, he's working everything together to the counsel of his will. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 is another one I would give you. It talks about foreknowledge. There it literally means to be prearranged. God has prearranged. 
Now, let me deal with real quick. Can I go over? You guys good? Can I go over for a few minutes? Let me deal with some common objections that we hear to this. Number one, the fairness argument. The fairness argument. Well, it's not fair that God chose. And I would say to you, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. It's not, it's not just you know, it's not just the fact that, that God would not choose everyone. The fact that God chose anyone is grace. Because everyone has rebelled against God. So the fairness argument is not a good argument. All of mankind deserves hell. Would you agree with that statement? We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. So that God would choose any is grace. The second big objection that gets raised here is the idea of double predestination. That by saying this, you're saying that God elects some people to hell. And I would totally disagree with that. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. Man, by virtue of his birth, deserves death. Is that true or false? It's true. So man, man any man that is born is already has a first-class ticket to hell, right? One way, do not pass go. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay? God prepared vessels of glory, but does it say that God prepared the vessels of wrath? Look at verse 22. Does it say that God prepared those vessels? No. Those vessels were prepared. Here's the thing. If, if you're alive today, you deserve to die, right? Right? If you're alive today, you deserve to die. You're already prepared for destruction. It's a scary thought. We just welcome two little tiny little babies into our family, and right now, you know what they are? They're vessels for wrath. They are. Isn't that what the Scripture says? Who prepares them and makes them vessels of glory? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, God, and in, in, although we can't make complete sense of it, God gets glory in preparing some and electing some and choosing some for salvation. Objection number one is fairness. Objection number two is double predestination. Objection number three is what about free will? I would, I would ask you to do this study. If you believe that the Bible says that there's free will, I would just ask you to go through the pages of Scripture and find free will in the Scriptures. Let me give you some hints. Can dead men have a will? Can dead men have a will? If dead men had a will, would they still be in caskets? I've done a lot of funerals, and I have never yet seen somebody get up out of the casket. Dead people don't have wills. Let me give to you some passages, and we'll come back and we'll start here. But let me just make this statement. Man's actions do not occur outside of God's sovereignty. And the crucifixion of Jesus clearly demonstrates this. Man's actions do not occur outside of God's sovereignty. God decreed man's actions in the crucifixion. Let me give you a couple verses to look at this week, and we'll pick up right here. God decreed man's actions. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 22, and look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, and you will see that God there clearly is the one decreeing what man's going to do. But you'll also see that man is personally responsible for what he's done. Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 say that. Acts 4, verses 27 and 28 say that. And Romans 14, verse 12 state that. Okay? This is like leaving you on a cliffhanger here. But that's where we got to be. It's 1030. Okay? So I know I didn't, I, I got through a lot, but I wanted to get to a certain point. My plan is to kind of wrap this up next week, give you opportunity to ask questions. I promise you I only have a page and a half of notes left, Okay? But 
I wanted to start there with this objection about free will, okay? And, and I, I would challenge you this week, if you believe that the Scripture says man has free will, look for it in the Scriptures. But let me give you a hint. Dead men can't choose. Acts 2.23, that God, that God decrees man's actions, and then under number two under that, man's personally responsible for his actions in the crucifixion, Acts 3, verses 13 and 15, through 15, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, and Romans 14, verse 12. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 are good verses to, to consider. Yes. Yeah. The Lord created us and we are controlled or even created. We have our days already written down. Yeah. Yeah. Already. It deals with the sovereignty of God. So we will we'll come back. We'll unpack a little bit more, give you opportunities to interact with that next week. Father, all I can say at the end of this is, is what an amazing salvation that you would set your love on any of us who are rebels, that you, would, that you would choose to love unlovable creatures who rebelled against you is just amazing. And so we praise you for so great of a salvation. We praise you for Jesus, who, who your eternal plan and purpose centers on, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we ask this and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.